quenching thirst. I want to talk a little bit about what we discussed last week to really set this up. Last week, we talked about a message called a high price demands a radical love. The idea that God paid a high price for you, we hear that a lot. God sent his one and only son, Jesus. He came to this earth. He preached the gospel, the kingdom of God, and, and it ended up in his crucifixion, and he was crucified on the cross. He was de dead and buried for three days and rose again. The thing that we forget about this high price is that the price was high not just because he had to go to the cross, but you pay a high cost for a valuable thing. And the valuable thing was not necessarily his resurrection. The valuable thing was his resurrection making your resurrection possible. He paid the high price for you, the most valuable thing. And one of the biggest struggles in our lives is we don't understand how valuable we are. The church loves to talk about how much of a high price he paid, but we forget you pay a high price for a valuable thing. He paid a high price for you. And understanding that you're valuable, you gain an understanding of a parable that I'm going to read it again and explain so we really understand what I'm going into tonight. In a parable in Matthew chapter 13, verse 44, it says, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure that a man discovered hidden in a field. And in his excitement, he hid it again and sold everything he owned just to get enough money to buy the field. So what we've been taught in this parable, and rightfully so, is that the man represents Jesus, the treasure represents man, and Jesus purchased the field to get us. But here's the problem. There was a law of the rabbis at this time that stated this. If a workman came on a treasure in a field and lifted it out, it would belong to his master, the field's owner. Psalm 24.1 says that the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. So according even to the rabbinical law, when Jesus found treasure in a field, us, he did not have to put it back to get it. Because whatever was in the field, us, the earth is the Lord's and everything in the field is the Lord's. So he didn't have to put us back. Jesus could have simply died on the cross, rose from the grave, and when he left, he could have said, come on. And in kind of a joking context last week, I said, and in that moment, we were all left behind. We've already been left behind. Jesus left us. He said, it's better that I go and you stay. Why? Because we were placed back in the field because he wanted to bring worth to the world. He didn't just want the treasure in the field. He wanted to, the field to be redeemed as valuable as the treasure that he found. It's called the treasure in the field, the people in the world, redeeming and reconciling the world back to the Father. And I think one of the biggest crippling agents of the church today is that we're so focused on when is God coming back that we don't realize we're actually prolonging the process. Because he says, I'm coming back for a spotless bride. I'm coming back for a worthy bride. And I have put you here to spread this good news and show the world how valuable it is because the world's in confusion. The world is in chaos. People don't know who they are. And we're saying, God, come get us when God says, I put you there to redeem it. And if you don't believe me, I'll read the scripture. 2 Corinthians 5, 19 through 20. 
God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them. And he gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation. Someone say reconciliation. So we are Christ's ambassadors. God is making his appeal through Jesus. No. He's making his appeal through us. We speak for Christ and we plead, come back to God. He put us back in the field, or in other words, he left us behind so that as a redeemed people, we can bring this redemption, this, this, this high cost paid for redemption to the world to reconcile it back to him. This word reconciliation in 2 Corinthians 5, it comes from this, this Greek word katalege, uh, which simply means restoration to favor and exchange. Reconciliation means this, a restoration to favor, an exchange. There was an exchange made for favor over all that was making other exchanges that profited and exited out of favor. Let me read that again. There was an exchange made for favor over all that was making other exchanges that profited and exited out of favor. What this simply means is this. We have been out of alignment. We've been out of order. And the ministry of reconciliation is Jesus says this. I am going to make an exchange. I'm giving up my life so that you don't have to pay this debt. And because I'm paying that high cost, I'm getting you back to the place of favor that you were out of alignment with. And he says, with this idea of reconciliation, bringing you back into alignment, bringing you back into the favor of God, back into this place where the windows of heaven are opening, he says, out of this, I'm going to use you to bring the treasure, not just as you, but redeeming the field as treasure itself. The reason we get this is because in the same scripture when it says, for God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, that word world simply means cosmos. When we think of cosmos, we think of, you know, like outer space. But actually the scripture in this simply means this. Cosmos is all creation and all of its inhabitants. So he says, let's think about John 3.16, the same wording. For God so loved the world. Or, for God so loved all of creation and everything in it that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him would not perish but have everlasting life. He says, I've redeemed everything and I'm going to reconcile all those things through the treasure that is you. But what we do is we speak curses over darkness and say, that's a bad thing, and that's a bad thing, and we don't need that, we don't need that. And God says, all that stuff you're cursing was mine at one time. But it's been perverted. It's become their idol. And he says, could you just bring some light and knowledge to it and reconcile all things back to me? That is the ministry of reconciliation that is put on the church. And we've become so focused on end-time theology where the scripture basically has no end-time theology other than a weird dream by a guy that was naked and alone on an island who was burnt up. We put all of our stock into this end-time theology when the entire thing was not about end-time theology. 
The Lord says, I am giving you this dream and this picture of what reconciliation looks like. Revelation is not to get you ready for the end times. Revelation is to get you to reveal the fullness of God into all areas. And he says the evidence of when you reveal the fullness of God into all areas looks like these things. So in other words, really and truthfully, end time theology can be summed up like this. It'll get closer to the end when the end starts looking more like the kingdom of heaven. Which is not up to him. Jesus himself says, I don't even know the times that the Father's going to send me back. Because it might take longer than expected based off of what I'm seeing. Is that, is that too much? That, that's what the ministry of reconciliation is all about. The earth is the Lord's. Everything's in it. I'm buying you back. I'm redeeming you to make you just as righteous as Jesus Christ. Go redeem it. Go reconcile it. And we have an issue with that. It's hard to imagine that we are just as righteous as Jesus. It's hard to imagine that we are in the same seated position as Jesus. But that is what representation is all about. He gave himself to represent us so that we, he could bring us rightfully back to the Father's ownership as sons and daughters. Right? An exchange was made on the cross for the restoration of the world and all that inhabit the world. God created the world, and the last thing he created was the one who had dominion over the world. What was the last thing God created? Man. Mankind. Now, here's the interesting thing. Cosmos doesn't just mean all of creation and its inhabitants. In the original language, cosmos literally means an orderly arrangement of the world. Whenever you see world in New Testament, it means an orderly arrangement of all things in the world. God created the world, and in his orderly arrangement, the last thing he created was the very thing that he wanted to manage everything that he had just created, mankind. That was an orderly arrangement of creation. I'm going to make the sun, the moon, the stars, the waters, the land. I'm going to make the animals. I'm going to make the vegetation. I'm going to give you everything. Then, then he says, I'm going to make the thing that is over it all. And in order to redeem a lost and dying world, he had to start backwards in redemption because man does not submit to the world. World is designed to submit to man. So man had to be redeemed for proper order of the world being reconciled to its managers. Let me say it again. God created the world and everything in it. Last thing he created was man. He said, man, put it to order. Then man got out the garden. Another way to say it, man exited the presence of God, right? Because we, we, we took an idea that there could be more outside of his presence. Which is amazing because the very next day, after exiting out of favor, if you will, eating of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, realizing they were naked, God still went looking for them. Your sin is not big enough for you for God to be so disappointed that he doesn't come after you. Right? Matter of fact, when you exit his presence, he still comes looking for circle dance. 
For those of you who are new, we've been talking about circle dance, perichoresis. It's the relationship between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's not Father, Son, Holy Spirit in order. It is a circle dance of living between the three and one that is God. God is Father. God is Son. God is Holy Spirit. And he says, I want you to understand what it means to dance in that circle. To dance in the circle of, of giving glory to the Father and, and abiding the word of his Son and living a life where the Holy Spirit is the one that's giving us instruction and, and giving us conscience and giving us all these understandings. See, we exited out of that, so God says, if I'm going to redeem this world, this world that is, is it, there's earthquakes and volcanoes and there's corruption and there's perversion, he says, I don't need to get the earth right so man's happy. I need to get man right so the earth can fall into order under the one called to manage. But he wants to get the managers restored. Is that, is this, that make sense? Okay. Here's the problem. Things are not being restored because we are settling for things other than God's desire for us. At some point, we actually have to start believing that God knows us better than we know ourselves. His desires for you are more true to you than your own desires. And yet we still get surprised about the fruit of joy when we actually start to listen. You know, like you say, I don't like serving people, but then when you finally do it, you find that you actually have joy. It's he knows your desires better than you. Well, I don't have a desire for that. Are you sure? If he's bringing you to it, he knows what you crave more than what you, more than what you think you crave. Because what happens in life is we, we, we were born into a world of sin, exited from the, 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 the presence of God as far as our relationship goes. And what happens with our life is that we are trying to quench our thirst for something. We're trying to quench a thirst for acceptance, for purpose. We want to be happy and have joy and we want to have self-control. We don't want to get too angry. We don't want to do all these things. We're thirsting for some sort of, like we're thirsty for something. <clears throat> and at some point, we need to understand that the Lord of Lords, the Most High, knows how to quench your thirst better than what you think is quenching your thirst. And where we're going tonight is in Psalm 42, 1 through 2. The writer says this. As the deer longs for streams of water. Some of you have heard this, as the deer panteth for the water. As the deer longs for streams of water, so I long for you, O God. I thirst for God, the living God. When can I go and stand before him? The deer was thirsty, aching for thirst. Maybe the thirst came from drought, you know, a season when nothing's coming, when you're working all the time, when you're doing all the things you're supposed to do, but you're not getting breakthrough? Has anyone ever been there? Like you're going to church every week, you're going to all the Bible studies, you're praying for your five or ten minutes in the morning, you've changed all the music, the Christian music in your radio station, you don't watch anything except pure flicks, you know, you, you, you make, you know you're, you're doing all the stuff, but for some reason nothing's breaking through. I know none of y'all have been there, but, but I've been there. We go through these times where it seems like no matter what we're getting right, that we're not getting that breakthrough. We're thirsty for something, right? Maybe it was a drought. Maybe he was running away from enemies. Maybe the deer is just, has been running and running trying to escape a bad situation, and he's thirsty. Have anybody ever been there trying to get out of this bad situation? 
and you will do anything you can to get out of it. And in the middle of all this work and effort trying to get out of the bad situation, you thirst for something. Or maybe he was simply walking into his purpose. And he was thirsty for that purpose. We don't know. But a thirst came over the deer and he needed water. The water was necessary. And like the deer, there is a thirst in us for a living water. And the scripture defines the waters as I thirst for God in verse 2. And just like only water can quench the deer's thirst, only God can quench ours. And quenching our thirst for things that are like God instead of the things of God is why the world is still groaning for its thirst for order to be quenched. The scripture says that the earth is yearning, it is literally travailing for the sons of God to be revealed. Why is it doing that? The earth is thirsty. What is it thirsty for? It was designed in a specific way to be put under submission to man. And the thing that it is supposed to be under submission to is out of alignment. So the earth is thirsty for sons and daughters of God to quench their thirst with the right thing. Because when you quench your thirst with the right thing, the living God, in turn, the earth is put into order. That's why you get these crazy praise reports of certain cities going through healing all the time. You know, you can say what you want about Bethel Church, but ain't no one going to be sick up in there. There's just some, something going on there, right? Um, you, 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 you can go to certain areas where literally vegetation has not been growing for years. I think, where is it, West Virginia, the, the book? Or Kentucky. They, they went for years with... They were in drought. They had no food. I mean, the waters were dried up, no vegetation. One prayer walk changed it all. Because it wasn't that the land couldn't produce. It was that the land was in a place of out of order. I talk about it all the time. Jesus and Peter and the disciples on the boat. Jesus rebuked the winds and the wave. He didn't rebuke the storm. He spoke to the things that were out of order, which caused the fruit called storm. And you, you, you can speak to the storm of maybe a, a, a bad marriage or maybe a bad work environment, but you don't say, God, God, help me with this thing. You, you, you start managing the specific things that are out of order. Is, is this? Okay. Why do we settle? We get thirsty we get so thirsty that we don't take the time to discern what we're drinking. Can I give you a personal story? Y'all don't judge me? Okay. Ryan can vouch for this because he was with me. There was one time in my life a long time ago where I was running a 5K. It was the JCB Mud Run. Some of y'all don't believe me. That's fine. When I say running, I mean more like falling and jogging the whole time. But we were at JCB and Pooler, and we were running down like these mud slides and going through the, the, the pond, and I mean, it was just running. I don't know why people like running. We need to get them saved, but it was just a lot of running. Well, I was going up and down, and I was miserable, and I was sweating. It was about 30 or 45 minutes into it. About 30 or 45 minutes into it, I was, guess what? I was thirsty. I wanted something to drink. 
So we're coming up on this hill, and as we're coming up to this hill, there's this huge blue bucket, like this like 50-gallon or 100-gallon, whatever they're called, big old buckets full of drinks. And the whole time I've been wanting some water. So I get there, and I'm like, finally, these people are smart. They've got water for all these runners. And without second-guessing it, they gave me one, and I popped it open, and I drank it, and I spit it out because I had opened up a beer. That's why I'm saying don't judge me. And if you do judge me, there's plenty of churches on the corner. I had no idea why some idiots put beer in the middle of a 5K. But I was so thirsty and so needed water that I did not take the time to think about that I was holding a can that I had to pop open. I was thirsty, and I was just thinking, oh, cool, water in a can. Popped it open, drank it, not what I wanted. I was so thirsty that I gave into something that had the appearance of what I was longing for. The same thing happened with a popular case. Are y'all following me? The same thing happened, and I promise you I didn't finish that. I got some water at the end of the race. I finished first. The same thing happened, that's a lie, to a popular character in the Bible. I'm going to read it to you in Genesis 29. Laban had two daughters. Some of y'all know where I'm going with this already. The older daughter was named Leah. The younger one was Rachel. There was no sparkle in Leah's eyes, but Rachel. Mm. Rachel had a beautiful figure and a lovely face. So since Jacob was in love with Rachel, he told her father, Hey man, I'll work for you for seven years if you'll give me your daughter. I want Rachel. I want Rachel, your younger daughter, as my wife. Agreed, Laban replied. I'd rather give her to you than to anyone else stay and work with me. So Jacob worked seven years to pay for Rachel, but his love for her was so strong that it seemed to him but a few days. Finally, the time came for him to marry her. I have fulfilled my agreement, Jacob said to Laban. Now give me my wife so I can sleep with her. That man was thirsty. So Laban invited everyone into the neighborhood and prepared a wedding feast. But that night when it was dark, Laban took Leah to Jacob. Who? Leah. Now who did Jacob think was fine? Rachel. He looked at Leah and said, that girl's eyes don't even sparkle. Well, the dad switched it up. And, he, and, he slept, and, and Jacob slept with her. Laban had given Leah a servant, Zilpah, to be her maid, verse 25. When Jacob's, in other words, when he slept with her, he did what with the marriage? He consummated the marriage to become one, right? When Jacob woke up in the morning, guess what he realized? It was Leah. What have you done to me? Jacob raised at Laban. I worked seven years for Rachel. Why have you tricked me? It's not our custom here to marry off a younger daughter to have the firstborn, Laban replied. But wait until the bridal week is over, and then we'll give you Rachel too, provided you promise to work another seven years for me. So Jacob agreed to work seven more years. A week after Jacob had married Leah, Laban gave him Rachel too. Now, if you have any questions about why he got two wives, not answering them tonight. (laughs) Here's what I want you to get from this. Jacob had a very specific thirst. He said, I want Rachel. She's got a spark in her eyes. She's got a beautiful face. And he said, I love her body. 
And he was so thirsty for Rachel, he worked for seven years. He worked seven years watching Rachel the entire time. And after the seven years, he's like, all right, I paid my due. I'm ready. Let's consummate this thing. I'm ready to get to the honeymoon, right? Well, here's the thing about Jewish culture back in these times. When they were getting married, the bride would keep the veil over the face until they got to the honeymoon parlor. So the whole time, Jacob's thinking he's with this woman that he thought was fine and was working for seven years, and he was so thirsty, he didn't even take the time to pay attention to what he was laying with. All he knew is, I've got her. Let's do this. And there are moments in life where something is presented to you that looks like the thing you've been praying for, seems like God, it may even present itself as God, but I want to encourage us all to pay attention before you settle for anything other than the only one who can quench your thirst, Jesus. What the church has done is we program and we put a lot of effort into creating great gatherings, but we settle for a less than portion of God for the experience because it looks like God so the people stop searching for God. Let me say that again. It looks like God, which sometimes causes people to stop searching for God. You know, we, we use a, a phrase a lot, welcome home. One thing that that phrase is never designed for is to make you think, I have finally arrived. This house should stir you up to realize there is so much more in this life before I go away. And I want to find it. The thing that quenches your thirst should not be the program or the experience or a good evening at Relentless. The thing that should quench your thirst is simply a relationship with the one who knows you better than you, who knows you better than your husband, who knows you better than your wife, who knows you better than your mama or your daddy. He knows you better than anything. And he says, I have given you very specific ways of how to discern what is me. Timothy, talking about the last days, said this in 2 Timothy 3.5. They will act religious, but they will reject the power that could make them godly. Stay away from them. Did you read that? I want you to think about some of the things that the modern day church says. Well, who do you think you are? You think you're godlike? Yeah. See, some of, that, that's hard. Not big G God, but he, he calls me a son of God. He calls you a daughter of God. He says we are made in the likeness of Christ. So some will act religious, but religious people will reject the idea of a power that can make you God-like. Not in the idea that we're replacing God, but that we are ambassadors of God for the ministry of reconciliation. Is that, that make, okay. We have been given a ministry to reconcile all things to Christ, but we're settling for the appearance of God, and that results in no things being reconciled. We settle for other streams that look like God instead of being satisfied by streams of living water. 
The church, I think the biggest issue with the church in 2023 and the years leading up to 2023 is that we can put on a great show and have a great experience. And people come on a Sunday satisfied by a great experience and there is no power to change them at all the moment they leave the place and live their week. There should be a power in a meeting that convicts you and inspires you and stirs you that every part of you wants to give glory to God in every way. From eating habits to entertainment that you put your eyes and ears to, to the relationships and friendships, everything should be in, in, like affected by this one idea. I want to glorify God in that thing. I want to glorify my God, my God in the way I speak to my parents I like, the parents I don't like, the friends I like, the friends I don't like, the work environment that I hate, the church people that I really don't want to talk to, but I'm here because I'm a church. All those things should be influenced, y'all can laugh a little bit, should be influenced by the idea that I want to glorify God in all things. You know what the best counseling session advice I can give everyone in here? Treat someone as if they are the representation of Christ. Honor them. And let them see Christ in you. Because we're not trying to curse them as dark, we're trying to light them up. The question is, do you understand that you are actually light? Is this too simple tonight or is this okay? Okay. We complain about work environments, right? Instead of getting excited for reconciliation. We complain about this stuff because it's no longer God quenching your thirst. It's your idea of a better job is to quench. Right? Or, or like we complain about church environments. About what we think should change. What we think Pastor Kyle should be doing. Can I just be honest with you? If I am an apostolic leader, where I'm going, none of you are going to know. It's my job to communicate that for you to go on the journey. I don't even know where we're going. You want to know why? Because I'm not trying to retrace waters that have already been sailed. I'm trying to go to a place that no other church in this area could go or wanted to go or they couldn't stand the fire to go. I don't know about you, but there's been a lot of trials. There's been a lot of sickness. There's been a lot of cancer trying to come at this house. There's been a lot of things the enemy's trying to do. And you know what? The enemy ain't made my knees shake one time. We are going somewhere. As an apostolic house, we are a family on a journey going into uncharted waters. And we think we should change this and change that instead of being so satisfied from your own worship and drinking of his presence because God is quenching you and not Kyle doing a good job is quenching me. You realize people take more pride in their pastor doing their job than their life change? Is that too much? We question new because we don't want his streams. We want streams we've already drank from. Instead of going to open our eyes to the possibility of a new flow. You see, this is why the church existing as a family is so important. We have to be in such relationship that even if we get it wrong, we still love each other to correct the path. Not rebuke the leader who may have had a wrong decision. I'm remembered of times when Paul wanted to go one way, and I forget the other, I want to say it was Barnabas, 
Uh, I might be wrong on that, but they, they had to split ways because Paul said, this is the ministry route I should take, and I think we should go this way. And the other one said, no, we should go this way. And they went separate ways. And guess what? They still both accomplished purposes of God. They're, like the, the, This whole like love doesn't exist in the church. Love should be exemplified in the church. But love is not you do what I want you to do. Love is despite differences, we're on the same journey. And I feel like we need to get this because I think the biggest fault quenching of thirst is this idea in our society that you have to accept everything as good because it's good to the person. That's not how God works. He says, I design you. I know what works best for you. I know what you thirst for. I know what you long for. Stop settling for other quenching of thirst. Stop settling for false streams. I want to read it again, Psalm 42, 1 through 2. As a deer longs for streams of water, so I long for you, O God. I thirst for God, the living God. When can I go and stand before him? What's interesting is that in Psalm 42, this is not David writing the psalm. This is actually a group called the Sons of Korah. Some of you may not know this, but Psalms is kind of broken up into book one, book two. If you read Psalm 42, you may see right above the text, it says something like book two. The reason for that is because starting in around Psalm 42, a lot of the writings and songs of Psalm 42 and forward actually aligns with the wilderness experience of the exodus of the Israelites with Moses. I don't know if you know that, but it's pretty cool. So Korah led a rebellion against Moses during the time in the wilderness. In Exodus, God judged Korah and his leaders. They died, but the sons of Korah remained. And they were grateful for God, and they were thirsting for God. And these sons who remain are writing this passage. They're saying, hey, just like the deer pants for the water, we thirst for God. We thirst for the living God. But they say something interesting. Can you throw that last scripture back up there? It says in verse 2, when can I go and stand before him? You see, the sons of Korah, these people were connected to tabernacles, the temple, the rituals. There was a place to appear before God. And the author is longing to be here because they have actually been away for a good amount of time. And sometimes we get so consumed in what we do that we begin to thirst for presence to be in the presence of God. And our first thought is just like these guys. I need to get in the presence. You ever had a bad week and you just think, I just need to get in the presence of God? Your mind goes to a mindset of these Psalm 42 authors. I got to get to the place. I got to get to the temple. I got to get to the tabernacle. I got to get to the Saturday night worship gathering. I got to get to the Seek First Wednesday. I got to get to the Monday morning prayer. I got to get to the, 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 the house gatherings in the middle of the week. I need, to get, I need to get to this. I need to get to that. We settle with quenching our thirst for a place instead of quenching our thirst in the relationship with the person. Who is the person? Jesus. For some reason, the church actually thinks God is more here in this than you alone. I say this should not quench your thirst. I say when you walk into this place, your thirst should already be quenched. 
Let me read this, 2 Peter 1.3. Everything we could ever need for life and godliness has already been deposited in us by his divine power. I'm going to read that again. Everything we could ever need for life and godliness. Everything you need for life and everything you need of godliness has already been placed in you by his power. When you were redeemed, when you were saved, the moment you said yes, everything that you will ever need is actually inside of you. It's called treasure in earthen vessels. Can I say it this way? Your temple is a field. And there are some of you who have identified treasure, and there are some, some of you who may think there is nothing of worth. But he says, no, 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 no. When I see your temple, I don't see a barren field. I see a field that is just like the treasure. It's got everything you need. You've got everything in you for life. You've got everything in you to succeed at your job. You've got everything in you to succeed at being a husband, at being a wife, at being a son, at being a daughter. Everything you need at being a child of God. You have got everything you need inside of you. And it's all you're ever going to need. Why? All of this was lavished upon us. I was reading that. All of this was lavished upon us through the rich experience of knowing him. Did, are you catching this? Everything you need is in you. And it's revealed through your experience of knowing, not an experience of earning. Who has called us by name and invited us to come to him through a glorious manifestation of his goodness. To quench your thirst has less to do with a meeting and more to do with knowing. And when a people individually stop settling for a stream called church and get obsessed with his streams of living water, church will become an expression of a people already satisfied and thirst and simply want to start chewing meat together for a purpose. This meeting called Ecclesia Church, and Ecclesia literally meaning a meeting of governors. Why is this a meeting of governors? Because God created us to govern all that he was given us. The six days of creation to us. He says, go govern it, go steward it, go manage it, go manage your sphere of influence. He says, everything that you need to govern properly is not going to get by the preacher giving you a blessing. I just need my pastor to pray for me. Actually, no, you don't. All you need is actually within you. You are a temple of the living God. A pastor praying for you is an agreement, not a need. I want you to think about that for a second. How do, how do, how do Southerners pick churches? I need, I need a pastor who is about my needs. I need a leader who's going to be about me. The best way for them to be about you is to show them that all you need is already in you. The way you unlock it is more relationship with God. Because when you start to build a relationship with God, as it says in the scriptures, it's like seeing in a mirror. There's a reflection of who he is and you start to understand who you truly are. It's, it's, so when we start to understand that, 
that everything we need is in us for godly living, for living in this world, for living at peace with each other, for, for, for kindness to be given out, for self-control and all the fruits of the Spirit. He says, you, you don't need a church meeting for that. This meeting is for all of the ones who have had their thirst quenched from the Holy Spirit, from God himself. This meeting is for those people to come together in agreement and say, all right, what's next? What are we called to do? Not quench my thirst. And it's for this purpose. Paul talks about this in Ephesians 3. Look at verse 9. He says, I was chosen to explain to everyone this mysterious plan that God, the creator of all things, had kept secret from the beginning. Now, now I want you to pay attention to that. You realize what, what we just heard? Paul said, God kept all this stuff secret until now, because I'm here. Let me say it another way. There are secrets waiting to be revealed, and you're waiting for them to be revealed as a manifestation in a church service. God's waiting for them to be revealed in the manifestation that is you. He says... The creator kept these things secret from the beginning. God's purpose in all this was to use the church to display his wisdom. And it's rich variety to all the unseen rulers and authorities in heavenly places. Stop right there. He says, when your thirst is quenched in Jesus, your purpose for church is no longer, I need to get my thirst quenched. Your purpose as church is to display his wisdom to all unseen and rulers and authorities in, uh, in heavenly places. You know what that's called? That's called the ministry of reconciliation. The church is called to be so quenched in thirst that we're willing to go into any battle knowing that they're going to lose. That we're willing to say yes to anything for God because we know the battle's already won. He says, you let your wisdom to be known to all the unseen rulers and authorities. There are unseen rulers and authorities in all, over, all areas. Pooler, Savannah, Chatham County, Effingham County, Georgia, the states, and beyond. And God says, while you're waiting for me, you don't realize that they're actually waiting for you. They're so... Did you know that the enemy understands what you're called to be? Why do you think he spends all his time trying to confuse you? That's the only thing he's got. The only thing the enemy, I'm talking Satan and demons, don't get your demon theology from Hollywood. The only thing that the enemy has is a power of suggestion to get you confused and off track. Why do you think over and over the scripture says be renewed with the transformation of your mind? Because the enemy wants you to be thinking off course because he knows that your purpose is to display wisdom in its rich variety to every unseen ruler. Because the wisdom that God places in us brings order to places that people don't understand. The fact of the matter is, people who are lost, people who are experiencing extreme spiritual warfare, that have rejected God, they don't know what they're wrestling with. So you know what God says? Hey, church, 
Go show them. Look at, look at verse 11. This was his eternal plan which he carried out through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Because of Christ and our faith in him, we can now come boldly and confidently into God's presence. Don't you ever think that you can't come before God with your requests and your petitions. Well, I've let God down this week. He still loves you just as the same. The biggest, that, you know what that thought was? The enemy. You want to know why the enemy wants you to think you can't come before God? Because he knows God's going to answer. <laughs> so please don't lose heart because of my trials here. I'm suffering for you. You should feel honored. This is Paul talking from jail. He says, hey, hey don't, don't just get discouraged that I'm in jail. I'm still fulfilling my purpose right here. I'm good. You want to know why Paul was good? Because his thirst was quenched. Because the quenching of his thirst was not freedom from jail. The jailers didn't even realize he was already free. What was he free from? Jail did not change any of his mindset. Jail did not change the mark of ministry he left on hundreds and thousands of transformed lives who were still going after God like crazy while Paul was in chains. Maybe that's why we understand why Jesus pointed out the the Roman centurion, when he said, hey, uh, I, I got someone at, at, at my house that needs to be healed. And Jesus said, oh, I'll come. And the Roman centurion said, no, 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 no. You don't need to come to my house. All you need to do is speak a word. I'm a man under authority. I understand how this works. You're a king. You speak it. It's done. We've lost that. It, it's, we we, we got to pray 45 times to make sure God does it. Let me assure you, when you lift up a prayer, he heard it. I think the follow-up prayer is what action you're taking as if it was answered. Okay. God, get me out of debt. Done. And he's going to watch what you do with every penny afterwards. It's no longer up to him, Right? We've got to start thinking in this way, quenching the thirst. It's God, you are what I need. Everything is in you. I come to you. Show me how. Everything we need for life and godliness has already been deposited in you. The more you get to know him, the more you discover hidden treasure in you. There is a field. There is a world. Everything in the world. There's dysfunctional families. There's the poor, the needy, the rich, the people in your spheres of influence, government, entertainment. The world is thirsty. Will you be the one where they get a taste of the living water flowing out of you? Because you're drinking from the right well. It, it should excite you for Thanksgiving and Christmas to come up with family that you can't stand. <laughs> or family that can't stand you. Because this time, all they're going to see is the right water flowing. Because their acceptance is not what quenches your thirst. <laughs> okay. Look at John 4, 13 through 14. Jesus replied, anyone who drinks this water will soon become thirsty again. But those who drink the water I give will never be thirsty. It becomes a fresh, bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. And in John 7, 38... Anyone who believes in me may come and drink, for the scriptures declare rivers of living water will flow from his heart. 
Did you notice something? Anyone who believes in me, Jesus speaking, may come and drink. The scriptures declare rivers of living water will flow from his heart. We read that and we always think it's talking about rivers of living water just being Jesus. But if you look closely at it, it's we come to him for a drink. And those rivers will flow from ours. You see, we, we, we are still in the mode of get people to church to get them to experience Jesus. They came to church the moment they started conversating with you. When are we going to realize that the power that God wants to display in his bride, there is just as much power at a gas station pump as there is on a Saturday night at 6 p.m. in this building. You know why we're not doing that? It's because we're still trying to satisfy our thirst with a Saturday night experience. I pray for a day that relentless not be a place where people just come because they need a taste of God. They come because they finally want to get equipped. Because they've already started drinking from that well. It, it, like, and I'm not speaking against churches that are different. Because there's plenty of churches that I believe that like healings and manifestations even. Can I go even further? We've seen healings here. But most of the healings have nothing to do with the church service. Can I, can I go there a minute? The biggest healings from people getting out of wheelchairs to cancer all happen before church and after church and never in the service. For most preachers, that would depress them. What if God is preparing this house for a day where every thirst and longing for healing, disease and sickness, identity issues, come from simply relationship with God and this is meant to show you what to do with it. Because it's a meeting of governors. The ecclesia. The world will be reconciled by a stream flowing out of you. Because you're drinking from the pure stream that is him. You see the lost have a thirst. Will they get it quenched in the God that they see in you? Or what caused them to say... I want different water. It's like this. When Jacob, in Genesis 33, ran to meet Esau, I want you to look at what Jacob said. In verse 8 it says, What were all the flocks and herds I met as I came? Esau asked. This is when Jacob and Esau met. Jacob replied, They're a gift, my Lord, to ensure your friendship." My brother, I've got plenty, Esau answered. Keep what you've got for yourself. But Jacob insisted, no, no, no. If I have found favor with you, please accept this gift from me. What a relief to see your friendly smile. It's like seeing the face of God. What's funny, leave that up there if you don't mind. What's funny is that the sons of Korah in Psalm 42 are trying to get back in the temple. Jacob got what he needed in the embrace of a brother because he tasted streams. He, he saw the face of God in his brother. And what he was thirsting for, quenched. 
And this is in the Old Testament. Do people see the face of God because your quench is satisfied? That is the ministry of reconciliation. That all things are reconciled back to God because when you walk into a room, everything changes. You light up a room. You bring light into darkness. You don't bring confusion into it. You don't even bring cursing into it. You bring peace and comfort and healing. Do you realize why your thirst is satisfied? Because when Jesus was praying on the Mount of Olives before he was arrested, getting ready for crucifixion, this was his prayer. Father, throw it up there in Luke 22, 42 through 43. If you're willing, please take this cup of suffering from me. Yet I want your will to be done and not mine. He satisfied a different thirst. It was justice. Put, put that, I want you to just put that 42 up there. It says an angel from heaven came and strengthened him. But look, he drank from a cup of wrath. He drank from suffering. He, Father, I don't want to drink from this cup. I'm not thirsty for that. But in drinking from a cup of wrath that took him to a cross and death, it caused us to never have to take a sip from that cup. Because of him drinking of that cup that he did not want to drink from, your desires and longings are quenched from a cup of right standing. I think we need to stop asking, am I right with God? And start saying, what is my response to the truth that I am right with God? So let our thirst be quenched. Let the world, the cosmos, let the thirst of the world be quenched by the way you manage yourself, steward yourself, steward your spheres of influence. No longer taking anything as a quenching of thirst. No longer taking a temporary satisfaction, but it's saying, Lord, you are the one that quenches my thirst. In you is everything I want. We do that. All glory will be brought back to God. Personally, I'm not waiting for Jesus to return for things to get better. I'm waiting for the church to be revealed. And so is the world. Is it tough right now? Absolutely. Because what the world has seen as church is not the church that God wanted to be revealed. The church that God wants revealed is a place that loves like no other, that walks in the power of God like no other. It doesn't boast in that power or take pride in that power. We are simply a conduit for the windows of heaven to let streams of water that flow from the throne flow through us into every area. Every area we walk into, let me just say it, there is a dry place. There's a dry place in the people you speak to, in careers, in families. We need to be the living water that those dry places have been wanting. They've been in drought for a long time. My encouragement to you tonight is simply to start praying, God, What do you want me to do? 
What is the thirst that I'm called to quench by bringing your living water into that area? And the only way you can do that is to understand that everything you want has already been fulfilled. It's just discovering it. He bought you. You're redeemed. You're worth it. It's amazing to me how all the disciples went through so much pressure and wrath and torment for preaching the word of God. But we think we're gaining victory just because we can, even though Facebook blocked me, I'm still going to preach it. We've got to get to the place where demons fear and tremble at the very mention of not just his name, but our name, because when they hear our name, they hear his name. The whole reason of Jesus leaving was to say, I've adopted you back. I have put you back into the family of God. The world is wanting something. You want to know why the world keeps getting weirder and weirder with what it's accepting? Because they're trying to get their thirst quenched. And we're rebuking the thirst. No, no, what we, if we're going to rebuke anything, it's we need to rebuke the options that they have for thirst quenching, not their thirst. C- can I get really bold? Let's talk about the biggest thing, homosexuality. You know what they're thirsty for? Love. And what we'll do is rebuke their thirst for love instead of trying to quench it. Because we see perversion. We see that's not right. You know what God sees? My child's thirsty. Can someone, can, can someone go bring him some water? Can someone go let them taste of the river? You put that into any perversion, you put that into any issue, and, and that's what it is altogether. They're thirsty for something. And you got it. So I say the church step up to be the rivers of living water that quenches every thirst and every desire so that people no longer have to search for what they're thirsting for, but that the thirst will be satisfied in the very presence of God. You know where he lives? You know where he dwells? In you. You know what that means to me? I know I keep talking, but it's okay. You know what that means to me? And I'll close with this. Everywhere I go becomes church. Amen. So let's have church. Let's stand. Let's give God glory tonight.